What does it mean to be a Christian? A simple question, but if you were to ask a handful of different people in your life who might even call themselves Christian, it's not surprising that you would probably receive a number of different answers to that. So many people refer to themselves as Christian. So many very distinctive religions consider themselves Christian religions. You might not be surprised to know that every single president in American history has called himself a Christian, professing Christian. Statistically speaking, even the great majority of the state of Utah would say that they are Christian. Of course, that's not surprising with the headquarters of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints here. Dominance of history, current influence, as you all know. But again, if you were to ask that question of a variety of different people, you will get a variety of different answers. Those who come out of a works-based worldview, a works-based salvation background, uh, Mormonism, maybe Roman Catholicism, a handful of other different uh, worldviews, might tell you that in order to discern whether or not a person is a Christian, you have to find out what they do. In fact, this is why uh, not long ago I had some uh, Latter-day Saint missionaries over at our house, and we were chatting with them around the kitchen table, and uh, at one point I just said, what must I do to be saved? And the answer was, well, you need, you need to get baptized. That was the, f- the, first, the first thing brought up, you need to get baptized. Well, why? Because the first thing that comes to mind in order to be called a Christian, to, to actually be saved, is to, or to get eternal life, you have to be baptized. There are works associated In Roman Catholicism, we find much of the same kinds of things to be true. Works-based views will say that in order to be a Christian, you have to do certain things. But the biblical view of salvation is that we are saved not by works, but by faith in Christ alone. So in order to discern whether or not a person is a Christian from that biblical point of view, you would first and foremost have to know what a person believes about Jesus. This is why it is not surprising that if you were to ask one person who claims to be a Christian who holds to this kind of view, is that person a Christian? They might say, I don't know because I can't know their heart. I don't know what they believe. Sure, I can watch what they do, which is important, but I can't peer into the soul of a man. Who knows the spirit of a man? This is why if a a father of 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 a daughter who's at marriage age has a young man come to him and say, hey, can I court your daughter? I'd love to get to know her more. Hopefully, one of the first things that good Christian dad is going to ask is uh, some questions about whether or not that guy is a believer, right? And how are you going to get to the bottom of that? You won't just say, tell me the things that you do. The good Christian dad says, tell me what you believe. Because a person is a Christian, not by works, but by faith, by what you believe. And so what you believe about Jesus will determine your eternity. You could spend a lifetime studying the nature of Christ. In history, myriad theological battles have been waged over who is Jesus. That doctrinal category we call Christology. The study of the nature of Christ. And while just as as a believer, you don't necessarily need to know all of the theological lingo throughout history 
to deal with all the variety of errors and the viewpoints on different categories of doctrine. I think that there are at least some terms that would be very helpful for all Christians to become familiar with eventually. It would serve you well to think through these things. I want to give you two of these Christology terms today that our passage in John chapter 1 today are going to bring us to, and that's the incarnation and the hypostatic union. Incarnation and hypostatic union, two very closely related ideas might be helpful for you to consider. So if you have your Bibles today, go to John chapter 1. I'm just going to read through our text today, verses 14 through 18. I'll pray, and then we're going to unpack each of those verses in turn. And I hope that you'll see a bit of what I mean when I say incarnation and hypostatic union and why that is so significant to us. So follow along with me if you have your Bibles, starting in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Lord, we love your word and want to know and understand it more. Please teach us from this text today. Help us to honor your son as we read through these things. Lord, defend and protect us from error. Help me even as I preach these things, Lord, to be careful about my words. I want to honor you most. I want to honor my brothers and sisters here and teaching here. And so, Father, direct this time and and be present with us. And we seek your help. We pray these things in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen. Back to verse 14. Let's look at that together up on the screens. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This might be a familiar verse to you. And it might be familiar even if you haven't memorized a whole bunch of scripture. And it's because it is one of the most succinct summaries of the nature of Christ in the entirety of the Bible. If you've been reading through this entire part of John, starting in chapter 1, starting in verse 1, you would have seen in the very first verse there, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was light, and the light was the life of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Who then is this word? What is this word that John introduced at the beginning of this chapter? I suppose it would be possible for a first-time reader, as they're reading through this text, to by the time they get to verse 14, not be able to identify the word. What was this? The word was with God and was God? All things were made through him? What's the word? Some might have supposed by this point, maybe the word is is kind of like um, the power of God. God had power. Maybe up until this point, with a few little exceptions in here, maybe the word is just an attribute of God. It's something about God that's true about him and always has been true about him. 
But here it becomes demonstrably clear that John is writing about none other than the second member of the Trinity. John is writing about Jesus Christ. If there was any question up until this point, that is now gone. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. That's who's being talked about. The only Son from the Father. Who went from not having flesh to having flesh, dwelling amongst us mankind. And whose glory had been observed by these apostles. Namely, John who writes about Him. We call this the doctrine of the incarnation. Incarnate, become flesh. In the flesh. It's the idea. Put on flesh. And to me, I've said this before when we talked about this doctrine, this is to me the single most mind-blowing miracle in the history of ever. Is the point at which the creator God of all the universe became a tiny little speck of an embryo human being in his mother's womb. I, do, I, I cannot personally imagine a more astounding my dizzying miracle than this one. In fact, if, as, I, as I ponder this, and I just, just test this out, I say this every Christmas. If you've been here at a Christmas service, you know I love to say the incarnation is the craziest, most amazing miracle in all of history. This, the Red Sea parting has nothing, nothing on this. The only thing I, th- I, th- I think, in my opinion, the only thing I think comes close to this is creation. Existence coming into being at the word of God. I was sitting with my kids last night. I was reading through John chapter 1, and I just let them ask a bunch of questions. It helps me sermon, fine-tune sermon prep. I go, oh, yeah, I missed talking about that. And they ask the best questions. And my little 7-year-old was there. She's asking about creation. She goes, so, so when was God born? God wasn't. The Trinity was not born. God has always existed. Well, what was, well, what was there before him? Nothing. Well, how old, how old is he? There's no age. Eternal. And she's like, so you're saying that God just existed amongst the stars? There were no stars. Oh, so God was existing in darkness. There wasn't even darkness. There was nothing. She goes, I can't think about that. <laughs> and I was like, yes, that's right. It is staggering that God spoke into existence all that is, but to me, even more staggering is however big and miraculous and marvelous and, and majestic and, and enormous that miracle it can, can be in our minds, our capacity to understand that that God became a baby. That, to me, is just extraordinary. It is in the incarnation that the two natures are found in the one person of Christ. Two natures found in the one person of Christ. You see, from all eternity, that second member of the Trinity, Jesus, Christ, this Messiah, this perfect Son, the eternal Son of God, has always been divine. One nature. That's one nature there. And he did not have another nature. He he only had one nature. He was divine. But at the incarnation, this one nature in one person of Christ added a second nature, a human nature, to 
the nature of divinity in the one person Christ. There was a point in time, in history, in creation at which the one nature of Christ added to it, the second nature of Christ, and we call that point the incarnation. Another word that you should know about that we're talking about in this uniting, this uniting of divine and human together in one person, we refer to that with the term hypostatic union. And again, just, just, that's one of those that's kind of helpful because it's, it was designed to help ward off, fend off so many errors in our thinking of what we might do and trying to well, make sense of how we fit divine and human together in order to make one person of Christ. The hypostatic union is such an important thing to understand. And we're going to develop this more in John because we'll see more and more about people challenging, wait, he's just a man. No, he's more than just a man. And we'll see this happen all over John, and we'll deal with more of that as we get there. But you need to know that Jesus is truly God and truly man. He is not half God and half man. He is not fully God seeming to be or appearing to be man. He is not fully man who is very godly. All of those are errors. He is truly God, truly man. Some would say fully God, fully man. 100% God, 100% man. How do you make that work? I don't know. And such is the nature of the creator. You know, when I was younger in the faith, I used to be very concerned about presenting an intellectually airtight gospel. And this is, I think it was a good desire. It led to lots of good in my life. I wanted to think carefully about all doctrines. And so I, I wanted to make sure that I could logically explain them, make sense in the mind. I love, I love um, illustrations. I love, I love good word pictures, and so I love trying to solve, well, okay, so the Trinity is like this, and Jesus and the uniting of the two natures into one person is like this, and so I, I ache to try to find ways to explain difficult things in the Bible. Um, and there were plenty of doctrines, that, even at, at early in my Christian walk, I knew to be true, but I couldn't explain. And so in my study, as, as a believer, as time went on, I studied more of the Bible and, and read books and articles and listened to sermons and debates and podcasts by other very helpful Christians in history. I've become more confident in my understanding of many teachings contained in God's Word and even grew in my ability to explain them to others. And the reason I'm saying this is because I'm betting this is the experience of many of you, right? You start with a bunch of questions as you go through and, and Christian walk and help by others and open up the Word. You go, oh my goodness, that's how that works. And Certain doctrines, you kind of find satisfaction. Ah, yes, that's why, because this verse says this, and it's just really wonderful when those conclusions come into place. But as I grew in my ability to explain those things to others and learned more about God's word over the years, the more I've come to realize that there are a few categories that just cannot be satisfactorily understood by the human mind. And those are things that we would call mysteries. When we deal with the nature of the Godhead, I always try to explain this. Mysteries, things that, not, not, not things that are hard to know. That's different. Not things that are contradictory. Those are false. Not things that are just paradoxical, mental dichotomies. No, I'm, I'm talking about mystery. Those that cannot be fully known by our mortal minds. But rather than becoming frustrated by that, as I might have assumed, I was comforted. And I suspect that some of you may have had those experiences as well. One of my favorite commentators on 
this passage that I read through as I was studying this week was J.C. Ryle. He, he wrote this about the union of the two natures of Christ. He said this, The union of two natures in Christ's one person is doubtless, doubtless one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian religion. It is just one of those great truths which are not meant to be curiously pried into, but to be reverently believed. This is to lead us to worship, induce worship, and to see the bigness, the greatness of our Creator. And in this one verse, even that half of the verse we've spent some time on so far right here, single-handedly fends off scores of the most fallacious and distorted views of Jesus. And believe me, there have been plenty. I want to give you just a few of the things that people have wrongly thought just to show you where our minds tend to go sometimes with these. Because sometimes people say, well, I've got to square this circle. I've got to make it fit and explainable and comprehensible to all. And many of these, actually all of these still persist today in one, one form or another. The Arians, and this is all in the first five centuries of Christian, Christianity. The Arians said that Jesus was truly man, but not truly God. Truly man, not truly God. The, docet, the docetists said that Jesus was truly God, not truly man. He just seemed to be a man. He appeared like that. But he wasn't actually a man. God wearing a human costume kind of thing. You know? The Apollinarians said that Jesus had a human body and a human soul, but a divine spirit. So he wasn't truly man. There was something about him that was, he was not fully man like you and I. The Nestorians said that Christ has, was two different persons, one human and one divine. The Eutychians said that Jesus was a mix of God and man, not one or the other, but a third thing altogether, a, a kind of God-man hybrid. The monophysitists believed that the divinity of Christ eventually absorbed the humanity of Christ, and so now there's one person, one nature. All of these are errors in thinking about Christ. And the correction for all of those errors starts here in the incarnation and the hypostatic union. That same commentator, Ryle, wrote this. Uh, he gave a full page of cautions about thinking wrongly about Jesus and concluded those cautions by saying this. The cautions just given may seem at first sight needless, wearisome, and hair-splitting. It is precisely the neglect of such cautions which ruins many souls. Next to the doctrine of the Trinity, there is no doctrine on which fallen man has built so many deadly heresies as the incarnation of Christ. You see what he's saying? I agree what Ryla is saying there. He's saying not only can we count, these are, there's so many wrong ways to think about Jesus. Not only is he saying that, but he's saying to go, isn't it hair splitting? Is it really that big of a deal exactly how we think about how Jesus, two natures into one person? Is that really that big of a deal? Yes. Yes, it is. Because thinking wrongly about that has ruined many souls. So how can we understand this? We can't comprehend it fully. So what do believers do when we face these things in the nature of God? We revel in it. We sing about it. We worship God because of it. We don't say, I, I can't understand how God is ancient in such a way that he has no, no beginning, no end. I don't understand that, so let's just not mention it. No! 
We write hymns and songs of praise and poems about him being eternal. Back and forward. And we sing songs about this Christ. All glory be to Christ. Those things don't lead us to turn away from, shy away from the nature of our perfect God, but actually draw us to him. All glory be to our Christ. So how in the world can we expect other people to understand? How about non-believers? How could somebody who doesn't know the Lord understand this? You know, even in my lifetime, it used to be that a person might charge, it's impossible for Jesus to be both man and God at the same time. As though that was some conclusion to the problem. But today, you and I live in a world where people genuinely think that one person can be both a man and a woman at the same time. So, you know what this tells me? People are okay with mystery. They are okay with things they can't make sense of or explain. You just wouldn't get it because you're bigoted. Okay, well you, so you can't explain it, right? So does that make sense? It doesn't have to make sense. It's just true. You don't, don't challenge. Oh, okay. So mystery is okay for you. Now, I do not mean to say, do not mean to say that our doctrine of the hypostatic union is on par with the current irrationality regarding gender. I am not saying that. I mean to point out that all worldviews contain beliefs that their proponents must regard as mystery. And so rather than expect the skeptic to be satisfied by a careful explanation of these things, we should instead pray that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes to the light of the glory of Christ and believe in his name. This is why the gospel is very clear to us. It is not repent of your sins and understand Jesus Christ. It is repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Comprehend the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? No. Believe on the Lord and you will be saved. That's what it is. And that's the call. Now, why is this so important? I told you before that Ryle said, which I agreed with, is that if you, if you, if you kind of neglect the errors and kind of go, who cares? It's really that big of a deal for us to kind of nitpick over how we talk about the nature of Christ when the conversation arises, when we're discussing how to distinguish what's right and true and what's false and wrong about Christ. It's really that big of a deal that we get precise about that. I already showed you, I think, yes, I think that actually can turn into major error. And here's just a couple of reasons why I think this is so important. Because Jesus is truly man, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. The Bible tells us he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus actually felt pain. He knows. He knows the pain of splinters in his hand and sunburn on his nose. And uh, he knows what it feels like when you stub your shin against the, uh, you know, a, a low rock or something. He knows the feeling of the, the pain of being punched in the face. He wasn't an apparition floating through. He actually can sympathize with even the sinless weaknesses that we experience simply because we're people. He can provide a genuine example for living. We don't go, well, he, I mean, he, he can live rightly. He's He's God. He's, a, he's like a ghost that floats through the earth. He, so, of course, this non-man can do that. But how can I? He provides a genuine example for living. And, of course, maybe the most important and fundamental. Jesus being fully man. Jesus can die. 
can die. Hebrews 2.14 says it this way. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, last week we talked about the children being talked about here is, is those who receive Christ, believe in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. That's the idea. Since therefore the children, the people, shared in flesh and blood, they're human. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. If Jesus was not fully human, he could not die. To become human mean, means that he became dieable. And his death was essential for our life. But because Jesus is truly God, the infinite value of his righteousness is more than enough to be imputed to all who will ever believe. Have you thought through this? Christ dying on the cross, if just a man, what's the value trade? And if you don't understand a trade, you need to get this because it's at the root of the gospel for us. You are a sinner. You have broken God's righteous law and are deserving of judgment. That's the fact. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. None of us have works that commend us before God. All are guilty and stand before him with blame. And the Bible tells us what we deserve. The wage of our sin is death. Jesus tells us that if a person were to die in their sins, die because they've sinned, then they would go to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, separation from God for eternity in hell. That's what awaits all creatures who have sinned against God. That's you and that's me. And apart from God's forgiveness... You are still in your sins and headed towards that end. But God demonstrated his great love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, hell, but have eternal life. Who, who what? Who believes in him. You see, his perfect son comes to the earth, lives the life we ought to have lived, goes to the cross. Well, why? To pay the punishment for his sins? No, he never sinned. Well, whose sins is he paying for? All who ever believe on him. And what's our charge? To repent of your sins and turn in faith to Christ. That's it. That's what you must do. Repent of your sins and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus and be saved. That's what it is. But if somebody were to say, well, what, okay, I, I, let's say I believe in a really good man. How does his death help me? Let's even say that God will permit an exchange from one man. Well, what would the value trade be? If he's only a man, then all his value can offer in an exchange is one man for one man. That's it. But he's not only man. He is truly God he is infinitely perfect and righteous and holy. And so when the God-man dies on the cross, his value being infinite can pay for the sins of the entirety of the human race. Because Jesus is truly God, the infinite value of his death can now be counted on our behalf. And the infinite value of his righteousness is more than enough to be imputed to all who will ever believe. 
You see, because you need more than just to have your sins paid for. You need righteousness worthy of heaven. It's as though you and I wear a dirty robe, filthied by our sins, that wherever we walk, whatever we do, it gets stained over and over again. And all of your good works can't solve the fact that you are stained by sin. And what happens in that exchange of belief is that we not only remove the dirty robe, but what is required to enter heaven is the righteousness of perfection, which we don't have in ourselves. And so we trade with Jesus. He takes the robe of sin and stain, and he takes the robe of perfect, pure righteousness and puts it around us. By belief in him, we can enter into eternity that way. If you're not a believer today, this is what you need to do. Repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. You need to turn in faith to him. You need to literally give up all the other things you've put hope in and put home in this perfect God-man alone for salvation. Colossians 2, 9 through 10 says, For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. bodily. Again, all of God in Christ. All of God in him. Because of this, he can intercede with us before the Father on equal terms. He doesn't stand before his Father as a mere creature. Hey, I'm representing all of us over here. Can you please throw us a bone? I'm so sorry that guy messed up again. I'm, please, please, Father, help that sinner, forgive that sinner's sins. No. He stands before the Father as an equal mediator. Christ in his divinity, because he's divine, he's unchangeable and immutable. There's so many things we could point to. These are just a few. He's unchangeable. And immutable, he's not, not changeable. If someone were to say, well, what about, I saw Jesus was a baby, right? And then he grew. Ah, that's a change, right? Well, of course that's a change. He went from alive to dead. That's a change too. How does that work? The hypostatic union, that's how. His humanity certainly changed. He went from a human, a mortal body, diable, able to die body, to now in a resurrected body. Yes, the humanity of Christ changed. But the divinity of God, the divinity of Jesus, never. He's unchangeable. He's immutable. A Bradley once said this to me. I, I, I internalized it, wrote it down when our, my younger pastor brother Bradley said this. I thought it was well stated. Your entire hope for salvation in eternity rests on the immutability of God. The fact that he doesn't change. Have you ever changed your mind about something? Have you ever thought something was a really good idea and then changed it? Have you, has it ever actually been a good idea, but the conditions changed, and so you, you, you change your mind? The Bible says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And I, I can't help but imagine, there are plenty of times I have to change my mind. Hey, you know what? You keep it up. I'll turn this car right around and go back home. How is it that you and I know? That we're not going to get to heaven. He goes, you know what? You're, the sinfulness of humanity has gotten to Forget this. Done. No. No more grace. I'm finished. I changed my mind. You don't deserve it. How can we know? Because he's not changing. How can we know that Christ, as a mediator today, will continue forever and ever until we stand before him in glory will be mediating for us because he's not going to change. He's not going to tire. This is all true Chiefly, chiefly because of the divinity of Jesus. All of Jesus' promises are God's promises. 
They will never fail. He will never change his mind. We must give people hope in the unchangeable gospel. And that unchangeable gospel must be built upon an unchangeable Christ. You must believe in this unchangeable Christ. We've only talked about half the verse. Look at the second half of this. And, uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, lived in the midst of the rest of humanity. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. There's a lot of ways that uh, commentators have walked through this. Uh, a, a good majority of them do see, as, as I, I agree, that what John, the apostle, as he's writing this, is meaning mostly. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Think about this with me. He's probably not saying that this is the glory that we observe in a, in a, in a, in a righteous man or in his miracles. Well, why? There's so many, so many people who operated in certain ways righteous. There's so many people in the Bible, uh, both before Christ and especially after him, who did great miracles, raised people from the dead. Their shadow healed the person that, walked, that he walked past. And uh, wonderful things that, that men and women of God did through the power of the Spirit, not on their own, Graciously offered by, by God to them. I don't think that's what's being stated here. Because it's the glory as of the only Son. There's something unique here about this particular observation. That would only be true of this individual particular person. And so I think this is talking about something more significant than that. And most scholars today, not all, but most would agree. But I think uh, this is talking about the transfiguration. I actually do think that's what's in mind here. John with a couple of other of the disciples at the time, goes up to the mount. Jesus is then accompanied in a vision by uh, Moses and Elijah, who are there with them. I don't think it's a vision. I actually think they're probably there with them out of heaven. And then there's a cloud around them. And then what happens is that Jesus transfigures. He metamorphoses. Something about him changes to reveal his divinity to these disciples. And so they observed in him, not the glory of a righteous man, but the glory as of the only son from the father. That's the guy. I do think that's probably what's in mind. Peter makes a similar statement elsewhere in scripture as he's describing that same event too. How significant. We've seen, we've beheld his glory. And that's what they're bearing witness to. But there's a line here that I just want to, draw your attention to, because if you were to study this on your own, you might, might run into this. It says, the only son from the Father. The only son from the Father. If you were to look at some of the older translations, especially King James Version, you, you'll find that says, only begotten son. Most of the modern English translations drop the begotten language and kind of highlight the uniqueness that's being talked about. Now, both begotten and only son are talking about the uniqueness of Christ from all other all, of, all the rest of humanity, that is definitely true. Both are talking about that. But there is a strong case to see only son from the father, the actual terms being used there, to actually mean only begotten son. And that doesn't mean literally born. That refers to the relationship that the son and the father have had for all eternity. Unchanging. Always have that relationship. From aeons past, aeons, aeons into the future, prior even to creation. That the Father and the Son, first and second person of the Trinity, related to each other in some way. How is that described as Father and Son? That's what's, that's what's kind of going on there. Talked to, it's referred to as eternal generation. We will come back around to this again when we get to John chapter 3 especially. But this is one of the verses that is the central 
a central verse talking about that kind of debate. What exactly does that phrase mean there? One thing we can know for sure, for certain here, is whatever John is intending exactly by this, he certainly means that there is something about Jesus that is true about him that is not true of any other man who's ever lived. That's for certain. As of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Those who knew Jesus in his earthly ministry assumed he was fully man. That's not surprising, right? If you saw a person in your life, you wouldn't go, oh, that's probably a God. No, you would assume as a man just like all the people in Jesus' day. This is why the Pharisees would even say things like, you're just a man, and you make yourself out to be the Son of God? Equal with God? They say these kinds of things, don't they? You're just a carpenter. How? That's the kind of stuff that they, they claim. Because the assumption is he's human. Now, that assumption doesn't carry always into history. The next couple hundred years, we're going to see people who didn't walk with Jesus in his, in his life are going to make assumptions to try to square that circle of the hypostatic union. They're going to struggle through that. But in Jesus' day, everyone assumed he was human. So what had to be first established here by his witnesses was that he was also divine. And that's what's being stated. There's something distinct about this particular man. We've seen his glory. And that same idea that a witness needs to especially highlight the divinity of Christ comes next. Look at verse 15 with me. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now this is a parenthetical. You see those parentheses there? It's, it's parenthetical because at the later in this chapter, that event will actually take place. And so we're going to deal with the details of it more there than we are right now. We'll, we'll unpack it when we get to that event. But right now, in the introduction, in the prologue, the apostle John is referring to John the Baptist here, showing how even John the Baptist was claiming that Jesus was divine. You get, that's what he's, that's the point. Not just, there's a righteous man that I know. No, there's something more going on. That's, uh, this is, was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. Now you need to be reminded, at least here, even as we'll deal with this later, John the Baptist was older than Jesus by six months. Not only that, he started his earthly ministry before Jesus. But here he says, Jesus ranks before me. So why? What's the basis for this ranking before him? Remember, just think about that. Up until that point in John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus had yet to heal anyone. He had not yet raised anyone from the dead. He had not cast out any demons. He had not made a blind man see or a lame man walk. He had yet to engage in his public teaching ministry. He had not yet even called his disciples or, or, or done the, 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 the teaching against the Pharisees. He, he had not yet been crucified. He had not yet been raised. And so none of those wonderfully true things about Jesus were the basis for John's statement that Jesus ranks before me. Well, look at his wonderful life. At the point that John said that, he'd go, look at Jesus. they go, which one is he? The one with the longer beard or shorter beard? Which, which, I don't, which one? So what's the basis? Why, on, what, on what basis is it that Jesus ranks before him? Because he was before me. Not in time. 
in time in that he was physically born as a man. John, John was born as a man before Jesus. John started his ministry before Jesus. So what does he mean? Again, it's a statement of the divinity of Jesus. That one that you see as a, that, that man that is standing there, that's all you see and know about him, he's his man, he was before me. More, more on that when we get there in a couple of weeks. But Jesus is the creator. Eternal precedence is what John talks of here. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is a very interesting line here, grace upon grace. It's the only place in the entirety of the Bible that this one shows up in Greek. So we, kinda, we don't have other places to go, ah, that's what it means there, so it's probably what it means here. It's been a little challenging sometimes to figure that out, the scholars in the past. But I think that this probably means that God graciously provided the law for his people in the Old Testament, that's the first grace, and then gave us a greater grace on top of that in sending us Jesus. A grace upon grace. The term can be grace in place of grace because Jesus makes obsolete the old covenant in fulfilling it. But the reason I pause for just a moment here is because many errors have come about from this verse as well. There are some that might call, we might be called uh, antinomians, we might call them, who are against the law. Hey, we don't need to worry about the law. We have Jesus. We can go sin all we want. We've got grace. Go murder. Go, go steal. Hey, if you pursue all the wickedness of the world, it doesn't matter. You've got grace in Jesus. That, of course, is the worst idea of that view expressed there. And the reason that they'll do that is because, look, look, the, old, the law was that one thing, and now we've got something that replaces it. Done. The law was bad. It was awful. And now we've come beyond that. But I think that's not what's happening. The law was the first grace given through Moses. And now we have a greater grace and truth through Jesus Christ. We do not reject the law of God. We don't throw it out any longer. We look to that as a gracious thing that the Lord provided to point us to our need for a Messiah, to expose our sins so that we would see that, to teach us how to live rightly in a way that we'd have peace with one another, the greatest possible peace with one another. And even more so, the law contained ways upon which people could be atoned for their sins. To bring forward sacrifice. This is all in the law. So much grace was offered to the people through that law, but it was insufficient. It could not provide salvation. And so a greater grace came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the grace upon grace. And this prologue summarizes with the last verse. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. It's another one of those sentences that sounds with a similar kind of mystery as the first verse. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and was God. Wait, so are you saying that the Word was God? Yes, but it was also with God? Yes, right? Same thing here. No one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side... He has made him known. Jesus has made the Father known to his creation. Jesus has done this. He'll continue on with the same idea. John will repeat the same theme multiple times in the gospel uh, as he continues on here. Jesus will make more statements like this. He says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. This is John 5, 37. His voice you have never heard. 
His form you have never seen. He's speaking to Israelites. You've never heard him. You've never seen him. I have. John 6, 46 says, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Jesus alone has seen and heard the Father. You and I have never seen or heard the Father like Jesus has seen and heard the Father. This verse makes it clear that he alone of all humanity has ever seen God and then brought that image of God to earth for us. This is why Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. You and I cannot see him. But Jesus has, and he is the image of the invisible God. Summary thoughts on this for you, brothers and sisters. You and I cannot think too highly of Christ. We cannot think too highly of him. I've said this in other ways, but you're not going to get to heaven someday and stand before Jesus and go, oh, you're a little less impressive than I thought you'd be. You're shorter than I thought. You know, that's not, that's not what's going to be conveyed. We're going to stand before his majesty and not be disappointed. You and I cannot think too highly of Christ. He is perfect. He is divine and human. He is immutable. He is unchangeable. He is righteous and holy and just. His love for goodness is greater than you and I can imagine, and his hatred for evil is greater than you and I can imagine. The extents of his grace and mercy and the heat with which his wrath burns are all beyond our ability to understand. So many people think about Jesus. Virtually every faith in the world wants to claim Jesus as their own. Obviously, those who call themselves Christ, Christians. But even in the eastern sides of the world where there's lots of different religions that over course of time, Jainism, Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, as they've interacted with Christians and heard these tales, these stories of this Christ figure, they've come up with their own doctrines of Christ and literally built that into there. They want to claim Christ for their own. Goodness, both sides of the political aisle today want to claim Jesus as their own. Both sides of the political decision-making want to claim that Jesus will be pleased with us. Man, just this, a couple weeks ago, what was it? The governor of California, did you hear? He put a billboard up on there and he, uh, um, to promote abortion and to decry anyone who would try to keep a woman from killing her own unborn baby. And he quoted a Bible verse from Jesus to indict Christians for not loving their neighbor by letting these women kill their babies. The folly of it. Everyone wants to claim Christ as their own. But what you and I think about Jesus, what we receive, will determine our eternity. 1 John 2.23 says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. In other words, you get Jesus wrong, you get God wrong. You're done. There will not be anyone in heaven who loves the Father with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and does not love the Son as divine. No one will be there like that. 1 John 5.12 says it this way, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so you and I 
or to think gloriously of him and to believe. And brothers and sisters, we will watch that play itself out in the way that we worship. What you sing about Jesus, what you say about him, what you believe about him, what actually comes to your mind when you think about Jesus really matters. And I hope you and I can learn to think rightly about him. Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you and are grateful for your word. Help it to correct us, to train us, to teach us, to admonish us, to encourage us and uplift us and all the things you designed for your word to do. Father, as we turn our attention to communion this morning, I pray that you would help us to submit ourselves to the the leadership and the authority, the kingship of your son. Help us to acknowledge all over afresh in this moment his sacrifice, the giving of his life for our sins in great love. We're so grateful for it, Lord, and we only can even pray to you right now as we've done multiple times and are doing at this very moment because of your son. So it is in his holy name that we pray these things. Amen.